surpassing, permanent. These are all the words that St. Paul uses in our epistle, and I think they're good key words for us this morning. Excessive, surpassing, and permanent. For that is how St. Paul describes the New Testament, and that is what you see in the Gospel reading. Jesus is an excessive kind of a Lord. He is a surpassing kind of a Lord because he is permanent. But before we get into the details of how it is that this miracle shows our Lord's excessive love, his hyperbolic surpassing love, I want you just to think about what that means to be excessive. Usually excessive carries with it a negative connotation, right? Someone who is excessive is someone who goes too far, who goes beyond. Minimalists Minimalism is much more preferable, right? Just do the bare minimum. It's preferable in some ways anyways, right? It's preferable when you're paying taxes to be a minimalist instead of excessive. I doubt that any of you in this room today are excessive when you speak with your CPAs. I want to pay as much as I possibly can. But in other places, being a minimalist is kind of an awful strategy. When I was at the seminary, uh, before classes really began, we went to this church in Fort Wayne. And uh, since I'm a pastor, I can tell negative stories about other pastors, right? Um, So we went to this church, and the pastor there, after the service, was greeting or saying uh, good morning to everybody in the handshake line, and he found out that we were seminarians. And so he said to us, do you know what they call a seminarian who graduates with all A's? Pastor. You know what they call a seminary, seminarian who graduates with all C's? Pastor. His point was, I think he meant it to be an encouragement, right? Whether you are a great student or not, you still have a place in the ministry. But just think of how strange that mindset would be, right? Students are all like this. What do they say when the teacher says, uh, this, I want you to take notes? The student raises his hand and says, is this going to be on the test? And every good teacher knows that you don't answer that question. Because if you say no, what do those minimalist students do? They put their pencils down and they start daydreaming, right? To be a minimalist as a student is not a good thing at all. To be a minimalist as a pastor would be a terrible thing. How wonderful it is then that our Lord is no minimalist. He does not simply do the bare minimum. He does not simply say, what's the least I can do for these people? But our Lord is excessive. And isn't that precisely the mark of love? Love never asks, what's the least I can do? Love turns that question completely around and says, what is the most I can possibly do? When young men write love letters to young women, they don't say, what's the bare minimum number of words I can say? My dear, I'm thinking of you. Love doesn't make for a very good love letter, does it? Young men who are in love with young women are effusive. They are excessive. They are surpassing in the things that they say. Just read the Song of Solomon if you want an example of that excessive kind of love. And that is the kind of love that our Lord has for us. Just notice how it goes in this miracle. I think of all Jesus' miracles, this one has to be my favorite, right? Because he sticks his finger in the guy's ear and he spits on his tongue. It's quite graphic. But I want you to notice the excessive, the surpassing nature of this miracle this morning. 
Jesus is coming down into this region. He's in the Decapolis, which is a Gentile region. So he's talking to what we might call foreigners, those who are outside of Israel. And they come to him with a request. It's a fairly simple request. They must have heard something about this man from Galilee, this Jesus. They know something of him. And notice what their request is. They've got this man who is deaf and who is mute or who can't speak well, probably because he is deaf. And the request is this. Jesus, would you lay your hands on him? Now, if Jesus was a minimalist, what would he do? If Jesus was only interested in the bare minimum, what would he say to those people? Okay, sure. After all, Jesus can heal without even touching. Right? You know how he raised the man's daughter or how he brought her back to health without even going to the house of that man. Simply at his word, he can heal. Or you also know, right, remember the story of the woman who had that flow of blood for 12 years and with just the touch of his garment, just the touch of the hem of his robe, she was healed. So Jesus certainly could have done some minimum kind of a miracle. But what does our Lord do? He surpasses the request. He goes far beyond anything that they could have hoped for or imagined. He takes that man aside privately and he gives him some kind of special treatment. And I wonder, right, I wonder if that man, if you were in that man's shoes, would you have said to Jesus, you know, this is great and all, Lord, but something minimal would be just fine too. You don't have to put your fingers in my ear. You don't have to spit on my tongue. You don't have to make an example out of me. But it's wonderful for us who weren't there. It is wonderful for us to see this kind of excessive love, this hyperbolic, this surpassing love of Jesus. Jesus takes him aside and makes a display of him. Jesus makes an example out of this man to teach the rest of those in the Decapolis and to teach you today what kind of Lord he is. Not a minimalist God, but one who loves beyond. One who loves in a surpassing way. One whose mercy and grace are new to us every morning and aren't just the bare minimum. So he takes this man aside. And he does for him what probably those Gentiles in that region might have seen done to their idols. You know how the Gentiles made all kinds of idols, all kinds of images out of stone and out of wood and out of silver. You know how once they made those idols, the idea was that the idol was a kind of access point to the gods, to the realm of the gods. And so often there would be these opening ceremonies with the idols where things would be poured into the idol's ears or things would be poured into the idol's mouth, maybe oil or blood or something like that. And there would be prayers that the mouth of the idol, the ears of the idol would be open. Jesus takes this man aside to show that there is no need for idols. In fact, Jesus reverses it around. Instead of man making an image out of God, it is Jesus who makes his image in us. Here is a wonderful echo, isn't it, of how our Lord first created man in the Garden of Eden, of how God formed the man of dust, Adam, out of the earth and didn't just send him on his way, winding him up, but took him in his hands and breathed into him the breath of life. 
Don't you see that same kind of excessive care, that same kind of surpassing love in how our Lord opens this man up, fingers in the ear. He didn't have to do it that way. Spit on the tongue. He didn't have to do it that way. But our Lord loves. He delights in going far beyond. And in this, he retraces He remakes what was lost in Eden. In fact, he goes even beyond it. But it doesn't just stop there with the details of what Jesus does to heal that man. I want you to notice his sigh. In that sigh of Jesus, that deep groan, you can hear again something of the excessive nature of our Lord's love. It's a great little word that's used there. Jesus looked up to heaven and the text says that he sighed kind of makes us wonder, what kind of a sigh was it? The same word gets used in the very next chapter of Mark's gospel when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they demand that he show them a sign, which he's been doing his whole ministry. It says there that Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he sighed at them, probably like this. You know that kind of a groan. You know that groan when your job requires you to do things again and again and again? You know that kind of a groan when your kids come to you with the same request again and again and again? You know that kind of sigh because you read the headlines, you see the world around us, and it makes you want to groan, doesn't it? But I don't think that Jesus' groan here is frustration with the man because it doesn't say that he sighed at that man. It says he looked up into heaven, rather, and sighed toward God. What do you see in that sigh of Jesus? You see him taking solidarity with that poor man. You hear him taking into himself the sigh, the cry, the plea, the request, the prayer, the intercession of that man who could barely speak. Jesus takes all of that into himself like the great high priest that he is. And he says, your sigh has become mine. Your prayer has become mine. And so he looks up into heaven and he sighs with all the groaning that that man had ever expressed in his life. In fact, I don't think it's It's too much to say that in that sigh of Jesus, all of our laments, all of our sighing, all of our groaning is summed up in him. How wonderful the love our Lord has for his poor creatures, that he would look on this man who could barely talk, and instead of seeing someone to just dispose with, to just get rid of as quickly as possible, Jesus sees a beloved creature. Jesus sees one for who he has come, and he even takes his sigh, his groan, into himself. And from that sigh of Jesus, from that sigh to his heavenly Father, ah, comes the wonderful reply. For now he looks back at the man, and not just sighing, he says to him, Ephatha, Ephatha. Such a wonderful word. Ephatha, Jesus says, be opened. And immediately the text says the man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now it says he spoke plainly, but we should probably translate it a little more powerfully. He spoke, the text says, orthos. You know that word, orthos, like orthopedic, right? Orthos means straight. If something is orthodox, it is straight. It's the right way. It's the way it ought to be. When Jesus heals the man, here again, notice the surpassing character of our Lord's love. He doesn't just give him kind of decent speech. 
He doesn't just turn the clock back so that he speaks like a little child. If you talk with my kids, sometimes you shake your head saying, they're really cute, but what are they saying? When Jesus heals this man, he speaks perfectly. He speaks straightly. For the surpassing love of Jesus does not just do things decently. Right? He doesn't just hit rewind on a bad movie. Jesus takes the bad movie out and he puts a good one in. Right? What good does it do to just hit rewind? Right? What good does it do to just go back to the beginning of the movie if you know that the end stinks? You need a whole different thing altogether. And that is what our Lord brings us. That is what his surpassing love gives to us. Not just a rewind, not just a going back to Eden, but something far greater. For the love of Jesus surpasses, it exceeds, it is abundant. It is far beyond anything we could ever have asked or hoped or imagined. And so it's no wonder that the man speaks. But Jesus tells him not to. And isn't that odd? You know, you'd expect Jesus has done this wonderful thing for the man. He's done something that surpassed his imagination. He has done something that the rest of the people in that Decapolis region could have talked about forever, right? Think of all the headlines that could have been published about Jesus, right? Jesus, the true God. Jesus, the one who traces his image in us, who doesn't need us to make idols. But Jesus says, don't say anything to anyone. Now, why did he say that? I think, again, in that strange command, you see that Jesus has come to do surpassing wonders. Think of it this way, right? It's kind of like Jesus is telling them, look, the story's not over. Don't talk about things that you don't understand yet. Have you ever thought that people might be doing that? Have you ever watched that news at night and thought, you know, these people don't really understand what's going on? They're saying things, but they don't know the end. They're telling us to do things, but we're not quite sure that they really have it all together. What happens when you spread information that's incomplete? What happens is people get the wrong ideas about things. And so Jesus tells them, look, you don't know how this is all going to end. You don't know the rest of the story. You don't know how things are going to go. So just be quiet. I know you're excited, but just wait. Don't say anything to anyone because I have something better in store. Not just a healing of the ears, not just a healing of the tongue, but I have something far greater to do. I have something that surpasses even this miracle to perform. And so you know how the rest of the story goes, don't you? You know how Jesus goes from here and he goes to the way of the cross. You know that after that cross and after that resurrection, he says to his disciples, not don't tell anyone anything, but go and tell everyone. For now the story is complete. Now the news is finished. For Christ has not come just to bring temporary physical healing, but he has come to do away with sin. He has come to do away with evil, to do away with wickedness. He has come to bring that kind of life, that better life, that perfect life to completion in you. That's why Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Not because he doesn't want the word to get out, but because he doesn't want the wrong word to get out. And there is a danger for us to do much the same thing, isn't there? 
There is a danger for us to make Jesus into whatever we want him to be. There is a danger for us to spread the wrong kind of news about Jesus, to say the wrong kinds of things about Jesus. And sadly, this afflicts Lutherans, I think, especially, because we are people who want to have good, pure doctrine, which is good. That's right. But if our love of the truth leads us to fear saying anything at all, have we really fulfilled the command? Don't be afraid to speak the truth. Don't be afraid to speak the name of Jesus, even if you don't have a seminary degree, even if you don't have all the details quite right. For the truth is that even a bit of the truth about Jesus, even a bit of the truth about our Lord and his great surpassing love can do wonders. In fact, it can do more than wonders. It can open up souls. Jesus came to do surpassing things, and his earthly ministry, what he did while he was walking around in Galilee, is just the beginning. And now, now in his church, you have not just the earthly ministry of Jesus, not just the healing of the ear or the healing of the tongue, but you have a better kind of ministry, if you can believe it. You have a surpassing kind of glory here in this place. For now, Jesus comes to you, not just to touch your ears or to touch your tongue, but now he comes to heal the soul. Now he pours out his love on us. He lavishes us with his grace in the waters of holy baptism. There, he takes us to himself. He unites us to himself. He sighs with us. And he opens us up to eternal life. He does away with our sins and he promises that those who trust in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. All of this, all of this miracle that we have heard this morning points ahead to this wonderful baptismal reality that now our Lord heals his people not by coming and putting his fingers in our ears but by coming and pouring on us the love of his Father. And that love, that love doesn't just promise us temporary fixing. You've probably often thought this. Why doesn't Jesus just heal all of our problems? Why doesn't he take away sicknesses? Why doesn't he make viruses disappear? He could, couldn't he? Why doesn't he heal my broken bones? Why doesn't he take care of the aches in my back and in my knees? Why doesn't he fix all the problems in the world? We sigh. And he sighs with us. In fact, in Romans 8, it says that, that all creation is groaning for the revelation of God's Son. And in heaven, your high priest, Jesus, still intercedes for you. And he will bring the day when all of this stuff that afflicts us will be no more. Isn't that the promise of Isaiah? In yet a little while, everything that's turned upside down in our world will be turned right side up. In just a little while, it will be so. Just trust him. Trust him. He has already given you his love. He has already given you the down payment of these things. He has already brought you to himself in holy baptism. Just wait a little while. And then, then your eyes will see what already now you believe. Then your tongue will proclaim what already now you kind of stutter to put out, that our Lord is great, that his works are wonderful, that truly he does everything, not just decent, but he does all things, not just well, but he does all things perfectly. 
See this excessive love that our Lord has for us and let that excessive love of Jesus burn in your own soul. Let it inspire something of that kind of excessive love in return so that it would never be said of us in the church that we are minimalists, just doing the bare minimum. Well, we don't need all this stuff. We don't need all this music. We don't need all these things. Let's just do the minimum. No. Let us love him in return. Let us never ask, what's the minimum? But let us say, what is the most I can do? To Christ be the glory now and always. Amen.